My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. My name is Brian Rice and welcome to Two Glasses In. I'm sitting here with world famous Michael Larner, who's the winemaker and viticulturist for his Larner family estate. I've had the privilege of knowing you since you got here into the valley and, and your parents and now I know your your wife and you know kids and it's great, you know, being a part of this community with you, Michael. And but I will say it's been a, a real pleasure watching your vineyards grow and develop into an internationally acclaimed vineyard site in Santa Barbara. Uh, the two of us, we've seen this region grow, but you've made, maintained and sustained and your vineyards now, uh, what, how old is it now? This is a, uh, for us, this is a great vintage. This is our 20th anniversary of growing grapes and our 10th anniversary of making wine. Wow, yeah, wow, so, so this is a huge milestone yeah. for you too. Yeah. I think the Santa Barbara County wine region is blossoming. It's completely developing into a serious wine country. And I think a lot of that has to do with people like yourself who really take great passion in what they do and also come uh, to, to this talent pool with an incredible amount of experience from different places. And I understand you were a geologist you, before you got into viticulture. Yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about geology? Or do you geek out on it still? Yeah, no, it's, uh, so before I went into the whole world of wine, born and raised in Los Angeles, my father was a cinematographer, my mother was a business owner. Their dream, it was their, their baby, was to eventually have a little vineyard they looked at land and Napa in the 70s, couldn't really make it work with their careers. So in the, in the early 90s, my dad was like, hey, you know what? Let me start thinking about that dream again. Went back to Napa and said, whoa, hang on a second. Everything you're showing me has three extra zeros here. That's you know, not exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for something a little bit more down to earth, more startup. And so they started taking trips and, and eventually from Los Angeles to here, it's a two hour drive. They, they plopped themselves down here and this is actually what we're looking for. It's, it's more authentic. It's more sort of, you know, what the feel we're looking for. So they were the brainchild behind it. I was just being myself, being a geologist, working in Colorado as a geotech engineer, you know, doing things fun like, you know, oh, okay, well, we've got to check this road. We're going to build on it. We're going to check the compaction. We're building the house. We've got to make sure the foundations are proper. So a lot of, a lot of engineering stuff. And I get this phone call from the folks like, hey, we're going to buy a ranch. We need some muscle. Are you in? I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, I trust you guys. You raised me pretty well. But uh, sure, let me, let me find out a little bit more about it. So I came here in 98 and I did a wine marketing class at UC Davis, a wine marketing OIV, and fell in love with everything. Fell in love with the business, the, the, you know, the back and forth of it, not just the winemaking, but the sales part, the stories that are told. Well, and of course, the geology of it. Geology is such an integral part of and that was the, they, the that was, sorry to use the pun, the foundation for mm-hmm. me was like, wow, I understand a lot of this. I understand the vineyard differentiation. You know, but then also pulling on my historical context, I, as a kid, I lived in Italy for five years. I was exposed to wine. It was, it was on the dinner table. I mean, in, in America, we have salt, pepper, and ketchup. Yeah. In, in Italy, it's salt, pepper, and wine, right? I mean, we need to, we need to make that transformation. Couldn't but, agree more. But, you know, so essentially, at the end of the day, they were the brainchild, but I felt very comfortable walking into those footsteps because of my background, because of my comfort level with the soil. Now, granted, that's one part of farming, as you know. Then you got to start worrying about Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when you start making wine, you got to start worrying about distribution and business and all these things. And actually, the funny thing is that, that intricacy of how more complex the plot got is probably what gets you more and more in love with the business. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you realize, I have to be a jack of all trades. I have to be able to understand not just from grape to glass, but from getting that glass into your hand. And whether that's you coming to visit us, where you're on my turf, or me trying to get into your turf, into a restaurant, or do a wine tasting at a wine bar, it really becomes a a really fascinating dynamic for a winemaker because, especially like you and I, we're we're business owners, we we are the face of the brand, so we have to do a lot of that footwork ourselves. And so the funny thing about being a geologist is you're outdoors. You love being outdoors, and you don't want to be stuck in a lab coat doing chemical reactions. 
So the gregarious nature of being a geologist who wants to be outdoors was an easy transformation for me to get into wine. And I think building upon that was experiences working locally, working at Harvest of Babcock. We call it the University of Babcock. Brian's an amazing teacher. You know, you've got, I worked at Harvest at, up the street at Rusak. So a neighbor, it was great to be working with a neighbor. Wait, I have to ask, I heard that you also worked with Gigal in yes. France and so, Antonori in Italy. So right? essentially, so those were local. That got me more interested in like, wait a minute, there's so much more to learn about winemaking that you realize I don't know half the stuff that I need to know. So I started taking local winemaking classes at Allen Hancock College. I was like, this is a great stepping stone, but I need more. So I went to UC Davis, got a master's of viticulture enology. So that's great. Now I just dissected wine and it became a little bit unromantic for a moment because you're like, wow, I understand all the chemicals, but how does this all translate to making wine? So you got the theoretical education. I got the theory and, then, and, and then I said, you know what? I'm going old world. So I went to France and worked for Gigal. I worked for Antinori in Tuscany. Um, so I set these internships up, f focusing on producers that are Syrah based, mm -hmm. but at the same time world renowned, because I know that they have a style that's unique and, and recognized. And they're not necessarily going off textbook, are they? They're, no, they're... and that's the amazing thing when you work for a company like that, because you walk in and, and you're slinging your guns, telling everybody you're so smart, you came from Davis, <laughs> here's what you should do. And they look at you like, whatever, you know, we've been doing this for thousands of years, right? So you realize there's this, there's a sort of, you know, medium where you walk in and, and you're like, okay, I'm going to learn from you and I'm going to learn how it's really done because I learned the textbook version, but now I want to see how you do it. I think the, the take home message, if I could say on that is it actually gave me confidence to do nothing sometimes to trust in myself as a winemaker, because one of the mistakes that a lot of Davis graduates make is we overthink it. We over manipulate it, we over engineer it, and then sometimes we make a bigger headache. Hmm. And, and when you work for a winery like Gigal that's been fermenting Syrah for you know, hundreds of years, and you have a fermentation that starts to smell a little reductive, and you go, to the, you go to the owner and say, hey, I think we should put some copper in here to find it or just you know, calm, calm this down. And he looks at you and says, don't, don't worry, it's going to sort itself out. And it totally does. Yeah. Then you realize, okay, there's, there is so much more to this, you know, this equation. Experience so, is the best teacher, wouldn't you say? Yes. I, and, and, and I'm glad you said teacher because when I came back from Davis, I said, you know what? I want to pay it forward. So I started teaching winemaking classes for Alan Hancock because I wanted people to learn from my experiences, and I love, that's what I love about the Allen Hancock program, is that it's actually taught by industry professionals that can really translate that into current methods, current models of how to make wine and practical applications. And so it's one of the things I'm, I'm really happy that I'm not just a winemaker, I'm not just the father of two, but I'm also a part-time teacher, instructor by teaching winemaking classes. You know, this is why I call, I refer to you as the professor. You know that, right? <laughs> right. I have to ask on that note, do you know what your IQ is? I don't. Okay. We I need don't to figure that out. We yeah. have to figure that out. Um, I don't want to know. It may change my disposition <laughs> on life. <laughs> so this is our uh, 2017 estate GSM blend. I call it Elemental. Basically, you make this every year. The, the golden rule within the family is that Grenache must be the dominant player, mainly because we're looking for a wine that is very food friendly and very compatible with multiple dishes on the table. So Grenache has this beautiful ability to bring in like velvet tones, a softness that is really unparalleled by other varietals. And then, but then you also need to balance that sort of soft velvet tones. You also need a little bit more firm mid-body, and that's where Syrah comes into play. And then a little spiciness on the back end from the Morvedra. For sure, spicy, loving yeah. this. Do you do whole cluster ferments? No, so this is uh, all 100% destemmed fruit. It's all uh, aged separately for two years. And so all the lots, uh, the picks, everything's aged separately, all neutral barrels. Hmm. Uh, and then at the two year mark, we blend them back together. And I'm saying we in this case, because I'm the winemaker, but whenever we do blends or sort of look through the, the wines and sort of classify them, I bring in my winemaking team, which is my wife, sister, and mother. So. So clearly I'm always right when we talk about stuff. <laughs> we just kind of, you know, look at, the, look at the barrels, look at the structure of each wine and sort of determine where they're going to go, which ones play well together. Mm -hmm. And that's what ultimately ends up being in the, in the, uh, the elemental. Oh, it's beautiful. Well done. I think you're a smart man for bringing your wife and mother into the process. I do that with my team, my staff as well at Artiste. And they, it's so much more enjoyable 
to share the experience of blending with others versus sitting in a lab by yourself, you know, with the graduated cylinder trying to make the world's greatest wine. Well, and the danger too is, is being the winemaker, there are lots that subconsciously I'm rooting for, but mm-hmm. may or may not be what the family wants to showcase. And so when you make a blend, which is the amazing thing about a blend is like, it's not like there's a holy grail, like, oh, it has to taste like this. No, blends are hedonistic. They're, this is what I want it to taste like. I can go outside the boundaries of, of wine and play around and tinker with different combinations. So you need that grounding rod. You need, the, you need, you need those other, other people to sort of be like, whoa, hang on, Mike, come back in here <laughs> because you've got all these great variables, but we want it to be consistent and we want it to taste really flavorful from year after year. So the idea is to have that panel helps you sort of you know, bring in different aspects. So you, at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, that, that's still a Larner wine because the Larners voted on it, but it also has some of the unique attributes for that vintage. Mm, I love it. What is the classic Larner Vineyard terroir taste like? Sand. It's like mineral stone. It's really amazing because our, our vineyard is, is, we're on the southern end of Ballard Canyon AVA, sort of the centrally most located in Santa Barbara's wine country. And our climate is, is sort of like the Goldilocks. It's like not too cool, not too hot. We have this beautiful confluence of the, the Pacific uh, breeze coming in by 1235. I mean, I set my watch to it. It's crazy. You're like, oh, here comes the breeze. And, you know, accompanied with that, you have some heat coming back from the inner part of the valley. So the Verone varieties ripen beautifully, Syrah, Grenache, Mervedra. But, um, but then you have to look at where the, the roots are basically sort of, you know, in, where their foundations are. And when I look at, um, you know, the wines that I make from the estate, Syrah, Grenache, Mervedra, Viognier, Malvasia, they all have this overlying mineral tone that I don't get in other parts of, of the world or Santa Barbara County. And I think that's amazing because that is, that is something that is directly attributed to the vineyard, not the winemaker. So for once, I'm sort of, you know, as a geologist, I love to think that, oh, yeah, you know, I, there's so much I understand about the soil and there's so much I understand about farming. But as a winemaker, I'll, I'll say, you know what, this time the land can speak louder than I do. I'll let the land talk, and that's what we showcase at Larner is, is proving that that soil is unique, and then those signature traces come through in the wine, and, and so I always get this beautiful minerality. It's so, it's so fascinating. It's, it's whetstone. It's, it's almost like a flinty character or, or mm-hmm. something like that that you might get in some whites in other regions, but I don't see it in all of your wines. In all the wines I make, there's always something there like, hey, there's, there's Larner, there's Ballard Canyon. You know, it's kind of in there. Would so. you find that that's the case with your other winemakers who purchase your grapes, that that, that is also in their wines? Yeah, that's a great point because we're not just Larner you know, winery. We are Larner Vineyard and Winery. Larner Vineyard sells 75% of its fruit to 23 other wineries in Santa Barbara County. And that basically means that we're selling small lots to these producers like Jaffers, Kunin, these guys that buy some, some Syrah from us or Grenache and they make very small lots, so they end up being vineyard designated. But when I taste those wines, um, yeah, there's always this little hint like, hey, there's Larner in here. And it kind of stands out. And, you know, they're obviously as, a, as them being winemakers, they're going to put their fingerprint, mm-hmm. their type of oak, their yeast, their fermentation styles. That's going to sort of bring to the forefront certain parts of the wine. But the backbone is still dictated by where the fruit is grown, ultimately. And that's, I'm very proud to say, it's from our vineyard. And, and that shows when you try those wines. Because when the guys at Ballard Canyon talked about creating an AVA, and, and the guys I'm talking about are like Steve Beckman, you know, Pete Stoltman, Matt Dees, Sasha Mormon, myself. When we all sat down and started like, talking about what wines do we think sort of showcase our region, we had a bunch of sommeliers coming to visit us. We all did a Syrah, and we all kind of joking with each other because we we're like, is this yours? I can't tell the difference because there was, so, huh. there was some, something that overlying all those wines was sort of common theme in each one. And that really made us feel like, okay, wait a minute, there is something unique about Ballard Canyon. Mm-hmm. Then you carve it out and say, okay, well, let's look at individual vineyards. Mine's more sandy with chalk, Stoltman's more clay with limestone. So there's intricacies that vary the content of what's going to be in the wine. But ultimately, those signatures are always there if they're coming from the soil. Since we're on the topic of Ballard Canyon, and now it's recently been approved as an American viticultural area, 
Can you kind of give us a geographic understanding of where it's located as relative to others? Yeah, I mean, we're like sort of equidistant from one side of the valley. I mean, our, our Santa Barbara's wine country is fascinating. It's a 30-mile stretch east to west following the transverse mountain ranges. And we're sort of right in the middle. And, uh, you know, we're just basically, what, two miles north of Buellton, you know, one mile north of, of Solvang, and then, you know, two or three miles south of Los Olivos. So sort of in this, like, little triangle of those three little you know, areas. And, but sort of geographically and climactically, um, we're still in the, the foothills of the Purissima Hills coming from the west. So that's why we see a lot of these marine sediments, especially in the, in the substrata. But we're also up valley, so we're getting a little more warmth. And, you know, so we have this really kind of sweet spot in the middle that creates a, a viticultural area that is unique because the best way I like to think of it is I grow a lot of Syrah. And I say, okay, I'm going to pick up my vineyard, lift it up, and I'm going to move it over to Santa Rita. I'm going to move it to Lompoc. All my wines would be defined by pepper, vegetal char characteristics. And I say, okay, well, I'm going to pick up my vineyard and move it to the east. I'm going to go to Happy Canyon. I'm going to mm -hmm. go, go visit my friends over there, Grassini. All the wines I would make from that vineyard would be fruity. Too hot. Too hot. So when I put it right where it is, in the middle, I have a little of that, that pepper <laughs> spice, a little of that, that vegetal character, but I also have this beautiful balance of fruit. So that's when you realize you're getting your maximum expression of your variety. So you know it's in the right place. And that's, that's one of the, the sort of the fulcrums that made us decide, hey, should we do an AVA? I mean, you know, great, we can do an AVA, wonderful. People will look at the bottle and say, oh, what's Ballard? But when you start thinking about it from a context of what do we do best, and let's use that to promote the region, then it kind of takes a different form. And we realized right off the bat, out of the 600 acres planted, 300 are planted to Syrah. So that's our champion. Hands down. That's what we do the, mo the, the most of and we do it best. So when we created the AVA, let's said, well, let's sort of put a spin on it that when people think of Ballard, they start thinking of Syrah. Um, that's one thing to do, communicate that. The other way to do it is put it in your bottle. Right. We actually put it in our glass, Ballard Canyon, right in the, in, the, in the shoulder of the bottle so people will immediately recognize it and say, whoa, hang on a second, that's interesting. It says Ballard Canyon. Then that way the consumer automatically knows it's Syrah because they realize it's Ballard Canyon. We only use that on Syrah. So it kind of brings this message. And so, as you know, American viticulture areas are not in, in California a law that dictates you have to plant this. You have to make wine like this. That's AOC. That's France. That's yeah. DOC, right? right? In Italy. In America, it's like, hey, where are you growing it from? Just we tell us where it's coming from. We have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's good. And that sometimes you have to sort of help bring that back into focus. And that's what we did by creating this, this co-branding, which is the only example in, in North America, by, by co-branding with the bottle. So you so. created a united front with your fellow winemakers. And you said, what are we? Let's sit down. Let's work this out. Let's figure out what's best from a soil and climate standpoint. Exactly. And send out to the world an authentic message as to who your what your identity is for sure and that's it's easy to do when you have about seven or eight winemakers in the room right? <laughs> yeah I, I would love to see the in, you know in first meeting of Santa Rita when they had like 30 something yeah. growers in there and I'm sure there was a lot of egos butting heads <laughs> but but at, at our scale you know small you know not a lot of producers there's 17 vineyards and six estate wineries there was eight winemakers sitting in the room making these decisions it, you can come to common grounds and make those decisions very fast, but also, I think, eloquently, mm -hmm. so that you all have the same sort of universal message, because we're all drinking the same Kool-Aid. Well, speaking of Kool-Aid, and this is the Kool-Aid of, of your area, Ballard Canyon, did you bring a Syrah for us to try? Oh, you bet, I did. So I brought two Syrahs, but the first one is, uh, what we're no, most uh, known for is our estate Syrah. Our estate Syrah is also aged similar to the Grenache Rome or Vedra blend. This is aged two years, but now we start to bring in a little bit of new oak. So on this particular vintage, which is 2016, we have about 38% new oak. So roughly four out of 10 barrels are brand new French oak barrels. There we go. I love the sound of that. So again, aged two years, about 40% new oak. This actually is five different uh, clonal lots. So basically separate blocks that were all picked separately on a separate day. Fermented separately, aged separately, and then put back together with that two-year mark. Cheers. Wow, that's a heavy wine. Very big, bold aromas. Great color. Absolutely dark. Thank you. It's coating the walls like paint. 
So tell me about this wine. This wine, I think, is sort of like the heart and soul of Larner. It's, it is bold, it is opulent and strong. I, at the same time, I have to admit that it has a soft side to it. You know, there's a warmth feeling it gives out. And I think that's kind of the style of winemaker that I am, that I, I want to make wines that bring you to, to our story, but also will pair well with food, that will age well, that if you want to put in your cellar and forget about it for 10, 20 years, no problem. And it's really hard because as winemakers, we find the challenge, how do we make a wine that satisfies so many people? And it's easier for us to go down that rabbit hole and be like, hey, let's make a big opulent wine, everybody will love it. And, you know, you conjure images of Starbucks. You know, it's like yeah. sweet and vanilla and everybody loves it. Right. You know, no plug to Starbucks. But the idea is that, you know, essentially we have to sort of find this, this medium where you can balance strength when you need it, but at the same time have some elegance. Mm -hmm. And Syrah is one of the few varieties, and I think that's one of the reasons why you have so much of a planet on the estate, that represents this happy medium between being on the forefront of bold but still a little bit refined so that it's not in that aggressive bold category like Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, that has, it still has these soft tones to it. Not, not quite as soft as Pinot, you know, still has more opulence than that, but it has this great sort of in-between flux between those two varieties that satisfies, I think, a lot, of, a lot of palates, but at the same time satisfies a lot of things on the dinner table. I agree completely. I think a lot of times I refer people to Syrah if they're tired of drinking Merlot, for instance, and they want to go to something more spicy, but Cabernet Sauvignons tend to be overly extracted and too powerful for a lot of palates. So Syrah is kind of a great middle ground, I would say, for, for the general consumer. Yeah, I It's mean, also a fancy word, right? It's easy to say Syrah. Yeah. <laughs> you get all those funny people like, hey, Syrah. You're like, yeah. what does that mean exactly? <laughs> but, you know, and I think that, I think, I mean, beautiful cabs and beautiful Merlots cannot be undervalued, but at the same time, when you're looking for a wine that has an ability to transcend many different palettes. Syrah is one of the few. And I think that's a, one of the reasons why it maybe hasn't hit this big commercial scene yet. I mean, you look at the sales, you look at the trends, and Syrah is always like slowly growing. And, I'm, and as a winemaker, I'm so happy with that. I would rather it slowly grows. There's, there's more attention being given to the variety over a longer period of time. We all find our niche. We all sell that wine. And we create a little bit of buzz around that variety and never worry about the, the one-hit wonder syndrome. You know, like all of a sudden, you know, sideways happens and Pinot is hot. And then, you know, where mm -hmm. is it going from now? Well, it's, it's slowly dissipating a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to find that happy medium. And I like the idea of Syrah just slowly growing mm -hmm. because it gives me longevity for, and also gives my kids longevity. Because as long as it's in a positive trend, we have a great growth, you know, to go. So. Absolutely. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara brilliant. Visit SantaBarbaraCA.com to plan your stay. So we've kind of talked a little bit about your journey. Um, Maybe we could talk about the development of your winery and yeah. planting of the vineyard. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about planting the vines <coughs> in those first days of developing your vineyard and um, you know, getting your winery started. Yeah, well, the winery started is a, is a chapter that's still being written. Um, essentially, you know, in 1997, my folks bought the ranch. I moved out in 98. And in 99, little did I know, but I was behind a, you know, a little learning how to drive a dozer, you know, whacking out sage and chaparral, running into yellow jacket nests and getting my, you know, That's stung the muscle it. part. That's the muscle right. part. Exactly. I fulfilled that part quite well. But, um, but you know, when you, when you plant the vineyard and you watch it, uh, so we planted 34 acres in 99 and, and you start to grow with it. Um, and that's why I did those internships at Babcock and Rusak because the first three years, there's no fruit. So you're like, well, what am I doing? I, I can't mm. just sit here and twiddle my thumbs. So as you start to grow with the vineyard and we start getting clients and the first, first vintage of 2001, we sold hundred percent of the fruit off to Andrew Murray, to Coupe, to small guys like Herman Story, Russell Frome, Craig Jaffers approached us. I mean, these, these are, these are people that are monumental. Yeah. Veteran winemakers. Yeah. Historic winemakers mm -hmm. here. They're talking to us. I'm like, oh, cool, this is awesome. So we, we kind of got into this network and immediately 
ended up, rather than pursuing one large purchase of the fruit, he said, you know what, let's play with the little guys. Because my, my father had this theory that, you know, anybody can make a commercial blockbuster film. It's the ones that are the sort of the grassroots or the small independent films that ultimately can lead to genius. Mm -hmm. And when, when we planted the vineyard, we planted not 23 acres of Syrah. We planted 11 two-acre blocks of Syrah. So as you know, as a winemaker, that doesn't ripen at the same time. So we have built-in variability. So we can't, I can't, Bonnie Dune talked to us and said, yeah, I'll buy your Syrah. I'll take all 40, 40 tons at once. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. No, we'll give it to you in, you know, over the period of two weeks. How's that? <laughs> you know, because it ripens differently. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we sort of initially said, okay, let's pursue the little guys because they'll take a little bit and they'll, they could do creative genius things with it. So that sort of became the, the mantra for Larner as a vineyard, selling off those little bit of fruits. And that was the way it was till 2009. 2009, I had finished my internships in, in Europe. I had my degree. I think I proved myself worthy of jumping into the, okay, now let's make this an estate winery. Let's branch out and start making our own wine from the estate. Let's get, let's get the public interested in it, not just from a vineyard designate, but now let's talk about estate wines. And that's a huge thing to us as, as you know, estate can't be underplayed. So we started making wine in 2009, 800 cases, which is 10% of the vineyard. And actually, ironically, that's the same year I filed for my winery permit. What is gonna make these wines showcase the best is when you have dust of the vineyard on your shoes. Mm -hmm because you're out there seeing where it's grown, you're out there seeing the context of what it is. And as a geologist, that's perfect because we're always dusty in our dirt. But I mean, the idea of experiencing it firsthand to see it is, I think, the, the destination that I want to, to uh, educate people on, to have them come out and experience it. I think it's what Santa Barbara is all about. We offer so much great diversity of climate, diversity of things to do, diversity of excellent restaurants and hotels. So why not make it also a fun experience to come out and try wines? So, so in the course of building out your winery on the property, uh, you also opened up a tasting room in Los Olivos. And yeah. Well, how's that going? That's great. I mean, you know, it's funny. We got to start selling some wine. So we opened a tasting room in Los Olivos. I like to call it the most intimate tasting room because square footage wise, it's probably only about 20 square feet. It's very small. It's like a broom closet. It might be like three telephone booths. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> But that's what we need. We need to achieve that, the intimacy, because we are a small family winery. We make 1,400 cases annual production. I always like to say it's a little bit more than I can drink alone, but it's not commercially mainstream, right? So if we can get something small to have people come in and experience a little bit of what we do, we don't need a huge presence. We just need to have that little outlet because we knew that we would eventually get to the estate. So Los Olivos is a wonderful place to do that. It has tons of tasting rooms, tons of shopping experiences. And in fact, my wife realized that not only did we need to open a tasting room, we also needed to complement something in Los Olivos that seemed like it was fading away, which is retail. And so she created this concept, the Los Olivos General Store. It was basically a modern take on old classic. We took this beautiful old gas station. In 1907, it was the first time it actually poured gas, and it was the longest running gas station in California up until like 1997. And she opened this retail store and brought in artwork, local craftsmen, jewelry, bath and beauty products, and, and brought something that I think Los Olivos benefited from because it gave an opportunity for locals to buy stuff and for people visiting to, to buy stuff as well. In the beginning, we didn't think we were gonna have a tasting room there, so we actually made that little three telephone booth size space my wife's art gallery. And my wife's a very talented artist. She paints using wine, as you know, is a very unique media. And it's, it's very exciting because as a winemaker, I would never expect to see so much depth, so much layering from, from just using wine. I remember the first days when you were developing the pigments with her. I yeah. Mean, you were literally building through a chemical process. Yeah. I think, and I, I, when I was at Davis, I was like, wait a minute, yeah. let's, let's play with this. So we started shifting the pH of wine, changing it from blue to green to brown. I helped her... And she helped me learn about, you know, the color and the layering. To see her artwork being displayed there was, you know, so proud. After a couple of years, I was like, well, we need to start selling some wine. So we opened our little tasting room there and have basically created this little satellite for us 
to sort of get people exposed to our brand while we're still doing wholesale in, in local markets, while we're waiting for the big mothership to open on the estate, which you know is coming soon. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned wholesale, so you do sell into the trade. You sell all over California or out uh, of state. So fifteen percent of our production is sold uh, only in California. So we target basically Southern California and as much as we can get into Northern. Northern's very dominant with obviously mm-hmm. uh, Napa and Sonoma. So and the other 80, 80%, uh, 85% roughly is through direct to consumer, through your tasting room and wine club? Through our little shop in Los Olivos. So That's amazing. It's small, but it can get, it can you know carry a big stick, right? Yeah. So. Well, kudos to Christina. I mean, your, I adore your wife. I think she's an incredible genius, creative genius as well. You know, the fact that she figured out how to paint with wine and make a living from it early on and and then you perfecting her pigments, and now she she's been featured in Wine Spectator for two yeah. of her pieces. Very talented. Very talented. And yeah, now you, lucky. you have two kids, and now I understand one of them is an art prodigy potentially. Like yeah. That. Well, so so the interesting thing is we yearly evaluate when we're evaluating these wines. We talked about at the winery with the family. Part of the thing is we're looking at what wines are blending, which wines are standalone. But you come across barrels, you're like, wow, that really exceeds our expectation. And then we created a reserve Syrah around that. But then the reserve Syrah ages an additional year. So at the third year mark, we go back and taste all those Syrah reserve barrels. And we're like, okay, these have developed, they're flourishing. And if there's one that really speaks to us, that says something like, hey, I am unique for this vintage, we will challenge ourselves by creating a wine that is a single barrel at that point and let it age an additional year. And I always joke, you have to be dedicated to age of wine four years. And that was the name of the wine, dedicated. We, because it's a vintage specific thing, and we've been making wine since 09, we've only made dedicated in 10, 11, and 13 so far. Those vintages spoke to us. There was something very unique about it. So because of that, sort of not being an annual production, we wanted to make it unique by basically not calling it just dedicated, but also dedicating something on the bottle to that vintage. And so the first wine we ever did was the 2010 Syrah, and that was the year my son was born. Hmm. So we have a photo of him in my arm. And then in, uh, fast forward to 2013, my daughter was born. And so we're like, well, we're not going to do another photo of the baby in our hands because we already did that. And Christina really dictates what's going to be on the art. What's the label going to look like? And so when we were looking at making this wine, my daughter was born. We went through all of her artwork and sure enough found this painting which is actually a dandelion that's blowing in the wind, but she did it with her little fingerprints. I love it. And it's a very, it's a beautiful color, the saturation, it's, it's just innocence, but, but still very sort of, it pops. And she had this little inscription she wrote on there, I wish for you, because as, as you know, you wish on a dandelion when you blow it. Oh, that's so cute. And so, so it's perfect for us. Like, oh, this is, yeah. this is great. We got to do it. So this is a straw that we basically age four years. It's a single barrel, uh, 100% new oak, 100% distemmed. Um, wow. You know, it, it's something that I think is very, um, it, it's a very representative wine of the vintage because it, it, it is the ultimate expression of Syrah from that particular year and from our estate. You're killing me right now. I've got to try it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's, let's give it a try. So again, this is our 2013 dedicated Syrah from the estate. Basically, we're looking at a Syrah that's aged four years in barrel. And it's the same barrel the whole time. That's a little trick I learned when I worked in France. So you keep it topped off? What are you topping topped every, off every month? Basically every four weeks. Okay. You know, making sure that there's no issues with like, you know, any aldehydic sort of contribution from the lees. But if it's in a very sort of temperature controlled environment uh, and not too agitated, it, it evolves beautifully. And so the idea with this, again, is just to showcase not just Syrah, but what a vintage can do for Syrah. So you barrel age for four years. Does that mean that the consumer doesn't need to bottle age it as long? Or does it actually have more longevity? What would you say? In Both. Terms of- Both. And that's why we do that. A lot of wines, I think, are slowly being more fashioned to drink earlier. That's not my philosophy. My philosophy is more the European, like, hey, let's make a wine that ages. How many people are going to actually age a wine? I think that number is changing slightly. So I want to find a happy medium. I want to reward the people that age the wine, but I also want the wine to taste great when you open it. So four years in barrel, one year in bottle before released. It's already starting to be on this positive trajectory of of great strength of a wine, showing great characters and flavor, and will age even longer. But at the same time, it is is approachable upon opening it. And it evolves in your glass as you swirl it. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I don't believe I've ever had a 
48-month age Syrah before. I know I've done that with port, yeah. uh, which you can age forever, um, but I've never actually had it uh, with just basic table wine. But that's, that's the thing, like working in France, it gave me the courage to do this because I saw it done effectively. And I'm like, okay, let's see if we can do that. Mm-hmm. I know we're in a different climate, we're in a different area. I always say that although we are making French varieties, we're not making French wines. We're in California. We, right. we have to own that. And in fact, we're in Santa Barbara, which is even better. We have wines with great natural acidity and, and elegance. Let's show a little of that California flair, but do it in a fashion that is rewarding to the consumer so that they can see all the spectrum of that wine. So it's their vines, it's their barrels, but it's our dirt, our climate, and our talent, right? I mean, that's yeah. really the difference between yeah. California wines and French wines, would yeah. you say? Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> Mike, you have a, a blog that I've heard is taking off and everybody's following you on this blog. So you, Viral. You're, you're very prolific in your writing, I will say, and yeah. you, but you're very entertaining to read. I found some of your articles very interesting, even from a winemaker background. Cool. You taught me a lot. Thank you. <laughs> um, I guess my question is, is, who are you targeting with this blog and, and why should people read it? You know, it's funny, when, when I write a blog like that, the only way I can describe it, there's a moment when I'm teaching when you have this outer body experience, you're, you're reading your slides, you're telling people about stuff, and then you kind of like look down on yourself and you're like, what, what am I doing right now? What am I trying to convey? And I think that's what I'm doing when I'm, I'm blogging is I take this sort of step back and I look at it from a, how am I going to write this so that it's, it's readable or legible to people that are not as, let's say, fortunate as you and I to be in the wine industry. Maybe they're not as passionate about certain parts of the wine industry. So you have to find a common ground. You have to find it. And so the easiest vessel for me to use is geology. So I always start with a definition from geology. That's the key word. But then it's so amazing how geologic words have this sort of double entendre sometimes. We think of things like unconformity, which is basically a missing strata in deposition. But it also, to us, feels like, hey, he's a nonconformist. He's not doing things the normal way. And so you can play with these words. And so like that, a fault or a yeah, foundation, you, you, like you Yeah, said you earlier. can play with all these different things. Yeah. So, so that's the premise of this, the, the blog. You start with that, and then you, you build upon that by saying, look, this is something I want to teach you about. And why it's important to me is because it opens this, this box of understanding geology and wine at the same time. And hopefully doing it in enough layman's term that people be like, oh, I kind of see what he's getting at. Yeah, I, I mean, I try to be word-wise and, and poignant in the, in the selections that, you know, of the word choice. But at the same time, I want it to be something that people can read and be like, oh, cool, I actually learned something. So the worst thing you come out of be like, I learned what unconformity means. Awesome. But you might be able to segue back and say, well, that's kind of neat because he actually played with this and made this very unique blend of Malvasia and Viognier co-fermented. Never heard of that. That's kind of a non-conformity thing. So, you, know, you have this ability to play with words. And, and that's what I like to do on the blog is sort of showcase that. How do get, they find your blog? What's, you just go to a website. It's pretty mm-hmm. easy. Just I mean, type in Michael Larner? Uh, no, you just go to Larner Wine. Larner Wine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you'll find it in there. I, I, I kind of see it as like bottled geology. Let me explain to you a little about wine from a geologic point of view. Mm-hmm. So. I like that. So tell me about your sister right here. She's a really important person in the you know, wine publication business. Well, yeah, not just, not just part of my, my blending panel. No, my, my sister Monica is amazing. She is the current reviewer for Italian wines for Wine Advocate, Robert Parker. And she is a gifted, talented writer and a tasting extraordinaire. I have never met anybody who can identify consistently the aromas and flavors and characters of wine uh, like she does. And I should have been warned or, you know, should have saw this coming when my sister, who loves food, would, we would go to dinner at a restaurant and she would look at the plate and be like, and taste it and be like, well, I know what ingredients they use to make this. And I'm just like, hey, it tastes great. You know? <laughs> okay. But that's her mind. That's her analytical mind, breaking down the components. What is saffron? What is this? You know, and looking at all. And that's why I think she's excelled at, at, at being a wine critic because she has this enormous vernacular, but at the same time can pinpoint it very precisely. 
But it's not like she has like, you know, three extra tongues and, you know, all these sensory perceptions that are different than you and I. Mm-hmm. She's not like a super taster. It's just that she's also exercising that daily, mm-hmm. um, like hitting the gym. So it's, it's toned. It's ready to go. She can sit down in front of glasses, 10, 10 wines a day is her average. Boom, boom, boom. Tasting of flavors, profiles, all these descriptors. You know, and it's challenging. Think about it. I mean, she was tasting Brunelli Montalcino. I mean, she looked at me. She goes, how many ways can I describe cherry? Right? <laughs> yeah. There's 100 wines. Right? right? And they all have cherry in them. So I need to find, you know. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's not the BS. It's not the, let me just sugarcoat this. Sure. It's, you know, maraschino cherry or, you know. It's finding cherry. those subtleties. Yeah. It's like saying, no, out. this is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And let me describe exactly how it, is, how it goes. And so she's an amazing person. That's why I love when I taste with her when we blend wines because she's looking at it from a completely different angle. I'm looking at it from structure, from what enhanced during the fermentation, all these kind of things. And she's like, well, I got, I got, this is the list of stuff I got. You know, what do you think? You know, it's like you got pepper, you got crushed pepper, you got red things, you got, you know, a little black olive. And I'm like, what? okay, you know, it's like it just goes through this whole thing. And you realize that, that the wine is complex. So I did my job right. But at the same time, that she has this amazing ability to dissect it. And so I think, I think Wine Advocate is enormously benefiting from her because of her consistency and her ability to, you know, sort of, and she loves wine and she loves Italy. So that, that just helps the whole thing. I mean, every time I read an article from her, I'm just like, oh, I want to be there. You know, I like, yeah. I like what I do, but I still want to be there. You know, it's, this is amazing. <laughs> and she transports you there. And even on, even on like little stuff, she, she wrote once about Ferrari and how she'd taken a test drive at Modena, but like you felt like you were in the car with her. And that's when you realize, journalistically, she's amazing. But she's been able to bring that into the wine world, which is also very important. It's not like, you know, popular science, like this wine tastes like blah, 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 blah. It's like, it's, it's alive, it's, it's breathing, and, and you want to smell it, and you want to taste it. And that makes, um, I think, Robert Parker's Wine Advocate much more enticing it's not so formulaic. So there's over 10,000 wineries in Italy. Does she taste every single winery's wines she, every she's year? She's tasting right now an average of about 5,000 wines a year. So do the math. Mm-hmm. That's more than, that's about, what, you know, 365 days, assuming it's every day. You know, it's like, that's 10 plus wines a day. Mm-hmm. Does uh, she get palate fatigue? Well, that's when she breaks it up. Mm-hmm. She's able to taste uh, over multiple days. Consortiums organize big tastings. She'll limit it to how many wines she tastes so she doesn't get the fatigue. But then she also has to write. So she's very committed to it. I'm so honored by how well she's doing with it, how she is tackling all of these producers. And, and think of it, it's my sister in a, let's face it, kind of a male-dominated society in Italy. And she's, she's doing it. She's, she's oh, killing it. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Does, does she have a better palate than you? Oh, hands down. Yeah. I mean, I always thought it was fun because when I started making wine, I started like got her together and I'm like, okay, this is what we're looking for in wine. When she was going for her first interview, actually before she worked for Wine Advocate, she worked for Wine Enthusiast. And so her first interview, we were sitting down and we're talking about faults and all the things that I knew and, and you know, Britannomyces and all these kind of things. And, and it just, I, I didn't realize the sponge she was. She's taking it all in. That's why I think she's, she's excellent at what she does. I've always said that psalms are really good at describing the poetry of a wine, you mm. know, the, the analogies we use to describe wines. Yeah. Where winemakers, we tend to deconstruct wines right. and reverse engineer them to figure out how they were made. To a fault, yeah, yeah. literally. Yeah. Which almost takes out the pleasure of it. Uh, it uh, yeah, that, you have to be careful of that, right? As winemakers, we're like, mm, you know, there's a little bit of oak. There's, and, you know, your wife's like, ah, just enjoy it. You know, it's, oh, yeah, it tastes great. Yeah, so. I have a winery called Artiste, and I put beautiful works of art on my labels. And I know you do something really clever with your labels as well. What I wanted to do when I felt most comfortable in is showcase my background as a geologist. I think that sort of speaks volumes to how we are crafting our brand. Essentially what we did is we took an approach by taking a stratigraphic soil column. So if you look at an old geologic map and you see all the different layers on there, on the side there's always this beautiful stratigraphic column. And it shows you the name of the formation, the age of the formation, and it kind of gives you a chronologic event of how these all deposited uh, or formed, whether it's a lava flow or sandstone or something like that. And so that stratigraphic soil column was the crux of what we want to do with the label. So we basically took that and cropped it over multiple wines so that each wine ends up getting a piece of that stratigraphic soil column, which is a unique piece of artwork. So every label will have slightly different soil context. And that soil actually speaks a little bit to the wine. So to give you an example, this crop 
is basically it looks like fractured rock, which is yeah. perfect for Syrah because it's bold. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it has some sort of like structure to it. And it's made up of multiple blocks, five different clonal selections. So again, you have this fracture pattern. So, mm -hmm. so even though it just looks like a simple stratigraphic piece of, of column of soil, to me, it's so, so much more because there's, there's pieces in here that indicate what the it's wine is about. showing the site. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's really neat. very clever. And how many sites? You said you have 11 two-acre plots of Yeah, Syrah? we have 11, 11 two-acre blocks of, of Syrah. Mm -hmm. So we have multiple expressions of it. We also have like six acres of Grenache that runs up this ridge. So we have conglomerates on top, shirts on the bottom. One, one of the amazing things about our vineyard I want to say it's the case for Santa Barbara County is, is we're all born from the ocean. We're all born from these marine sediments. And in my vineyard, I see that very well showcased. If you go to the top of my hill at 680 feet elevation and you flip over a stone, sometimes you'll pick up a rock and you're like, hey, cool, there's a fossilized seashell in here. Other times you'll pick up a rock and find basically like pieces of chalk or chert or something like that. And each one of those stones is telling you a story about where they were formed, which tells you what was going on on the, on the land before. So to give you an example, 20 million years ago, our properties were underwater and down by San Diego, and they've been <laughs> riding up to the north on the south side of San Andreas Fault and basically coming up out of the ocean. And so on the top of my hill, I'll find sandstone with fossilized seashells in them. In the middle of the vineyard, I'll find chalk, just fractured and friable chalk, with uh, some sand on top of it. And then as you get to the lower elevations, you'll find chert. And so that, that fossilized sandstone is, is basically coastal environment. The chalk is, you know, sort of shallow marine, old coral reefs. And then the chert is deep marine sediment. So all of that is aquatic and was under the ocean is now sitting at 600 feet elevation. So all of, all of this land came out and is now sitting at this elevation that the vines are so happy growing into because it's, it's an alkaline soil, they love it. And it sort of tells a fascinating story about Santa Barbara's wine country that you see it, diatomaceous earth on the west side, serpentine soils on the east side. So you have this wonderful sort of kaleidoscope of marine depositional environments that are all now where we grow our, our vines in. This is absolutely fascinating. I am so curious to see your soils. Have you ever cored to find out how deep they go and, and Well, we can that? only go so far. I mean, once mm -hmm. you get past the chalk, you start to end up in these layers that are very difficult to get mm -hmm. through. You punch through them if you drill a well or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've seen it go from sandstones to shales to you know, many different formations. But as a farmer, what I'm most concerned about is that first essentially 10 feet because the roots, the feeder roots are sitting in the first 18 inches. For us, that's a clean matrix of sand. Mm -hmm. And then underneath that is chalk, which is providing nutrients. So it's this really fascinating growing environment because you have a stressful topsoil because it's very devoid of vigor because it's sandy. But then you have this sort of somewhat calcium-rich substrata that's feeding those, those vines a little bit, keeping water available when needed. So it stresses them out in the beginning, but they also have long-term viability through their lower roots. So it creates what we're always looking for. To make ultimately the best wine, you have to find this healthy balance of stress on your vines. Not on us, on the vines. We need to figure out how to <laughs> fool these guys into producing highest quality fruit, which as you know, is smaller berries, more concentration, thicker skins. And that's all achieved by having soils that are working with you by being lower in vigor. And so that's kind of the unique thing. I mean, everybody's blessed with that in Santa Barbara. It's not just, not, not just Larner. It's a, it's a trademark you know, that we all have these really fascinating marine uh, depositional environments. So. Well, it's no doubt that Santa Barbara has become you know, the premier Central Coast wine country. And we're not only just producing great wines, but it's become a great destination from mostly Southern California, uh, people coming up from the South. But also internationally, we're starting to see more and more people come from all over the world oh, yeah. to taste our wines. Isn't yeah. it crazy? That's a, it's, it's, it's great. I'm sitting in a tasting room and somebody comes in speaking French and it's like, this is cool. You know, Europeans are coming, Germans, French, Italians, you know, and they're getting it. It's in the context of Santa Barbara as a destination, as a place to visit rather than just like, oh, it was... You know, wasn't that where General Hospital was filmed or something crazy? Right? But we find that the real return on our investment is the relationships that we build sure. and these long-term relationships that you have with your with your buyers for your fruit and getting to see them express themselves through your fruit. Yeah. That must be really rewarding. Tell me about some of these people that you work with. You know, so we sell to 23 wineries. They would even they don't even mind if I tell you this, but I call them 23 egos. 
because they all have their different opinions and that's great because as winemakers you need to know what your style is your story because they want something in particular and so being a vineyard we sell those sell 75 percent of the fruit off to other wineries my job is to make sure that they're, they're they feel like they're part of the estate that every decision that they want to have made is being carried out by myself, by my team, and that ultimately it translates into the wine when they make it. And so there's a lot of caster characters, and they're awesome characters because you learn from them. Being a winemaker myself, it's great R&D built in. I go and I, I can sit down with you know Dan at Jaffers or Paul Lotto, a small producer, an old psalm that was very getting very well respected try his wines. I have my opinions. He has his opinions and we kind of have common, common ground, which is our vineyard. And so we, I like to see the way he makes it. I, I get to learn from him. And then, but I also say, okay, well, this is how I'm making my wine. And, and we're both right. And that's what's a great, it's an amazing thing. You know, you, you can try 23 Syrahs made from our vineyard and they're all right. They're all the right expressions. It's, it's always good to, for us to, to be active with those producers because I always say that they've been selling Larner longer than I've been making my own wine. I mean, we've been in a vineyard for 20 years. So it's, it's important to learn from them and to segue that into how is that going to benefit all of us. And I think that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve so that they feel comfortable in every decision they get is carried out. And that when it comes to the winery, they're like, now it's time for me to showcase the vineyard. And, and I think they do that all very well. That is, I think, what's going to uh, ultimately give us credence and the ability to stand apart and say, yeah, Napa's great, and Sonoma's great, and Paso's great, but Santa Barbara's great as well, and this is why. You have direct connection back to the land, back to the producer, and back to the experience so that you can learn about winemaking from hands-on experiences. You can come and taste in a small three telephone size tasting room, right? <laughs> you don't have to be in a limo and, and doing, you know, picnics and all. You can actually do it more from the way it seems like younger and younger people want to do it, which is actually getting involved and, and doing and, and feeling it and touching it. You know, it's the touchy-feely part of the museum. So Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, Michael, this has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate having you on the show. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Salud. Salud. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara. Co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon, and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Shalafant and music by Peter Seibert. Special thanks goes to Michael Larner and Larner Vineyard and Winery. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. 2020 Rare Works LLC.